0: He tried to delay the freedom for the enslaved people until the debts could be paid off, but he also sought a ruling from the court of the state of Virginia, and he received a ruling actually in December of 1862. At the same time, he was fighting the Battle of Fredericksburg, and immediately afterwards, he wrote to his wife that uh, the ruling was to free them, as soon as possible, and he would begin the writing of the emancipation Papers, that was in December of 1862. The date in which it would take effect was December 29th. Right, so that was five years. For the enslaved people, that was a long time, and many were unhappy. They thought they were being lied to, that they were being deceived, that Robert E. Lee was not carrying out the terms of Mr. Custis's will that they thought they were supposed to be freed immediately upon his death, and they weren't being freed, and he was hiring people out to pay off the family debts. and he thought they thought, they're as far as they knew, you know, they couldn't trust Lee. They, they didn't know if they'd ever see their relatives again, so they were concerned. And so there became a lot of unrest, a lot of unrest, a lot of tension. Mrs. Lee wrote, at one point, she felt the place was on the verge of a rebellion. And so Lee ultimately did carry out the terms of the will. You could say obviously, he was legally bound to do that, and he was. Um, it's ironic to some degree that he did that while serving as a general of the Confederate army. But uh, nonetheless, he carried out the terms of that will in December 1862. So real quick, and then I want to get started. Um.
1: Were any of the enslaved here on the plantation free once this became occupied by the federal United States Unionists?
2: Well, that's a good question.
0: Were were any of the enslaved people free here once the U.S. Army took over? Arguably, yes. In a sense, they all were. They all had the opportunity to immediately become free if they wanted. They could pack up whatever you know, mere possessions they had, and head north. And hope to be protected by the US government. However, were they technically or legally free is a different matter. And then it becomes debatable because when you look at the history of how people became free, you realize that it was a very complex thing. The Emancipation Proclamation wasn't all that it is claimed to have been, for example. Did it actually free people? Or, well, yes, but for the term of the war. But did it actually free anyone? Because once the war was over, would they remain free? Virginia was a state in rebellion. Virginia was a state in rebellion. But once Virginia was returned to the Union and was under the US Constitution once again completely, the US Constitution made it a lot more complicated Because without amending the Constitution, No slave could be freed by the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. That was the importance of the 13th Amendment of the Constitution. So the Emancipation Proclamation was a wartime measure. And if if the 13th Amendment was not quickly passed by the House of Representatives and ultimately ratified, arguably almost three and a half to four million people would have been returned to slavery. As soon as the South was defeated. Because again, slavery was protected by the Constitution. Unless the Constitution was amended, no one was set free. But in this case, they could be freed by their master according to the terms of the state law of Virginia. And that's how this was executed. So there were nearly 200 people, 63 people here. But uh, but 196 people total, and the two of the plantations included, who were set free by the terms of will. We do December 29, 1862. I'll be glad to speak with any of you more after Dr. Crew, but I do not want to step on his uh, or intrude on his time any So let me introduce you to Dr. Spencer Crew. Thank you, very much. <laughs>
3: Found us. So, quick recap. Martha was married twice. First to Daniel. He dies. They have two children before he dies, though. And then she remarries George. George raises the two children as his own. Martha dies at 17. John gets married at 19 to 16 year old Eleanor. And they have four kids. Good? Good. Okay. So, They get married, have four kids, and then the Revolutionary War is happening. George Washington is the general for that, so he's off fighting in the war, and John here is an aide to George Washington during the war. However, unfortunately, he dies at the age of 26, the same year that his son is born, so his son is only about six months old when his father dies from Camp Fever at the Battle of Yorktown. So now Eleanor here is pretty distraught. She has four little children now to take care of. Martha here also pretty distraught. She had four children. Two died in infancy. And then now her other two children have died as well. George is off fighting in this war. She's alone. Nobody's really all that happy. So Martha agrees to take care of the two youngest grandchildren and raise them as her own, as well as George. Once again, now George is raising a second generation of Martha's children. So when George becomes the first president of the United States, it included Martha, George Washington Park Custis, and Ellie and Nellie. So that's why we have this famous portrait here that is in every in every history test book, textbook. We have old George and old Martha, and then you see these two little children, biologically that would make a whole lot of sense, however, it's the grandchildren that are in the portrait here. So we have Martha, Nellie, George and Washi, as they call him, because George Washington Park Custis, and we have George Washington here. Oh, confusing, you'll call him St. George. So they called him Washi. And uh, time goes on, they're a happy little family. They stay in contact with the other two daughters, they stay with their mom. Um, so it's kind of a distant family thing, but it's not like they were excommunicated from the family because they didn't live with George and Martha. But Eleanor here gets remarried and goes on to have seven other children with their new husband. Um, So lots of kids for Eleanor there. But after George and Martha die, they receive their inheritance. They receive quite a bit, all four of the grandchildren, from Martha, because she still has everything from him. None of the kids survive, so she can't pass anything on to them. So it goes to all four grandchildren. So that means that George Washington Park Custis received three properties. Two plantations outside of Richmond, off the Funky River, and then this 1,100-acre plot of land. Um, he decides to turn this 1,100-acre plot of land into a memorial to George Washington. George, he really idolized him quite a bit. He moved to Mount Vernon. When he was only about three. His dad dies when he was not even a year old. So the only father he knows is George. So. He builds this memorial to him. Well, if you're going to have a memorial museum to somebody, you have to have things in it. George Washington's Mount Vernon does not go to Park Custis because his name is Custis. Mount Vernon is a Washington property, so he will never be able to inherit it. Even though he grew up there, really loved it, he can't get it. So it goes to a nephew. And the nephew doesn't want a lot of the items in the house. So he auctions them off. And so, George Washington Park Custis sees this as a way to build what he liked to call his Washington Treasury, and uh, he did. He went into debt buying all of these things that he wanted for his Washington Treasury, his deathbed, curtains, silver, china, war tents, correspondence, literally anything and everything that George and Martha touched. He wanted it for his collection. So, He has all of this stuff and he's living on this 1100 plot of land. There's no house here yet. So he lives in a little shack down by the Potomac River and down there, down by the river, it's damp and moldy and animals are there. And you just spent all of your inheritance buying all of this stuff and it's now being destroyed. So what does he do? He comes up to the top of the hill here and builds the part of the house where we're now sitting. He built it with these rough beams, basic brickwork. It was built by just the slaves that he brought with him. There was no architect. That's why that door we walked down was a little short. Um, So, he builds the house here that we are now in from 1802. (coughs) That's why that door we walked down was a little short. Um, So, he builds the house here that we are now in from 1802. To 1818. He builds it in a couple of different sections. He builds the North Wing and the South Wing by 1804. Also by 1804, he has gotten married to his wife, and so the family lived in the North Wing here. But that does not mean that the architecture of the house for the North Wing stayed the same way the entire time the family was living here. It's changed and remodeled a couple times, and we'll see that when we go upstairs. It's a little strange and odd. But he has the two wings, Family lives here, guests live in the south wing, and then you had the big open field in the middle. Well, unfortunately, he has all this stuff and a lot of land, but not a lot of money, so he used it all to build the two wings, and now doesn't have any left to build the rest of his house. So, over the next decade, he builds that big, colonnaded center section, and by the time he finishes that center section, his daughter, Mary, is about 10th. So finally, she gets to move out of the nursery that is in the north wing here, and up to her bedroom upstairs. Time goes on, they're a happy little family, and in 1831, she marries her childhood sweetheart, Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee spent quite a bit of time here when he was growing up. Supposedly, Lee and Mary here planted trees on the plantation together and played games in the, fam- in the morning room. And uh, that's, the Lee family spent quite a bit of time here because his father, Light Horse Harry Lee, made some bad investment decisions, um, and left his family pretty poor. But Light Horse Henry Lee was also Cavalry Officer for George Washington, and knew of the Custis family. So they're all well connected, everybody's distantly related to each other, like in Europe. And so the Lee family was invited up here to spend quite a bit of time with the Custis family. So they fall in love, they get married in 1831. He goes to West Point, or actually gets goes to West Point before he marries her, but he goes to West Point, and the only thing that he brings to the marriage that he has is that West Point education and about $3,000. But he is a civil engineer, he graduated second in his class with no demerance at all. Uh, pretty darn good record. I think he only really missed first by a point or two, not very much at all. Um, but he was a very good engineer for the US Army and has posted a lot of different places around the US. Mexican War he fought in, he decided some state lines, Rerouted the Mississippi River for St. Louis, a couple other things as well, built some forage, and rivers, all the good stuff that civil engineers do. So, since he is posted all, all around the country, she travels with him for the first year or so of their marriage, and their first son, George Washington Custis Lee, is born down in Fort Monroe, Virginia. Shortly after that son is born, Lee gets a transfer back to Washington, D.C., and they move back into Arlington House here, The two of them move into her childhood bedroom, and they stay here until 1861. The rest of the seven children are born in that childhood bedroom, back in that dressing parlor, and uh, they live happily until 1861, when Lee decides that he is going to fight for the Confederacy and switch after 32 years of Union service. Since he does that, it means his family cannot stay, and so they have to leave. Mary helps pack up the house, and they move further down to Richmond, different places all around Virginia, fighting for the Confederacy. Right after she leaves, about a week or so after she leaves, this becomes a Union Army base. It was called Fort Whipple. It was the main defensive position for Washington, D.C. We all admire that lovely view outside. It was also a lovely view back then, and you very well could have, the Confederacy very well could have, put cannons on the hill and bombarded Washington, D.C. So to avoid that, the Union Army took this over at the start of the Civil War, and used it as a defense position. So, a lot of the items in the house were not here, but some of the items were, and so they were destroyed, lost, stolen, uh, but some of them were returned back to us as well. But in 1864, uh, Montgomery Miggs, who was quartermaster at the time, decided as a way to get back at Lee for switching to the Confederacy, is going to start turning it into a cemetery, So since 1864, there have been soldiers buried here on Arlington, pretty cool. Anybody have any questions? You said since
1: 1864.
3: Yep, anything else, that was a lot of information I threw at you, you ready to go upstairs? So the first person buried down the hill a little bit? So the first people buried in Arlington, so Mary Mary Randolph is a a family, Related to Mary here. So that she's one of the first people.
4: Yeah, wanna,
5: this shows how the split happened and tells the history behind it. Okay. How the Syfaxes that were slaves under George Washington Custis can all relate their ancestry back to Martha Washington. Okay. To
4: Martha Washington.
5: But uh, as far as their descendants outnumber the Lees 10 to 1 or so. As of 2008 or so, we have their family tree in the last room on the way out.
6: Interesting. Why? <laughs> that's that's a lot of Syfaxes.
5: <laughs> well, it's like there was a lot of history here that was beyond just the Lee family. Yeah. And the Civil War. Everyone likes to talk about the history books of Mary Anna Randolph Custis marrying Robert E. Lee and having their seven children here. Right. But there were over 150 people here. Wow. So, the Syfaxes. Uh, there were six families here, African-American families. Two of them, the Syphaxes and the Greys, really made it into American history on their own accord. Not okay. having anything to do with the Lees. Okay. Uh, the Syphaxes, well actually the Greys, Selena Grey saved George Washington's treasury and all his furnishings during the Civil War on both only a set of keys and broomstick. Wow. And she remained behind when the Lee family left out of a request from uh, Mariana Randolph Custis. So, yeah, if it wasn't for her, well, yeah, you'd be, uh, you wouldn't have your stuff at the Capitol building, Mount Vernon, or anything else. And that was because she told the supervising officer here for the Army of the Potomac that was stationed here, this was yes. the majority of the Civil War forces at the time, at the start, that soldiers were coming in here using Martha Martha Washington's chinaware as target practice. They were stealing curtains from here that were uh, part of the Washington family, and they are going through the basement trying to steal items out, decorate their own homes, which, of course, this is wrong. So the general who was in charge of the Army of the Potomac took all those items and ordered everyone to put in the U.S. Patent Office and sealed it Uh, Well, they they kept it there until the end of the war. So that was great. the Grey's contribution. Okay. Cyfax is even that norm, but... I mean, you got... why we have this information here, they were one of the first success stories after the uh, Civil War ended. Yes. But hopefully I'm not going into too much detail on it. So anyways, to explain this, George Washington Park Custis had relations with Martha Washington, uh, a slave to that he had inherited from his mother, Martha Dandridge Custis Washington.
7: Yeah.
5: Now, she gets pregnant first before his own wife. Okay. And so, there's a little bit of complication there.
7: Right. George
5: Washington Park Custis doesn't really want to acknowledge this, really. But, so what he does, oops, somebody hit the, <laughs> our little sensor thing. Okay. But anyways, what happens is, is that uh, she gets, she's given birth around 1802, 1803 or so. And uh, George Washington, so she's born into slavery. Right. But George Washington Park Custis sells her to a Quaker for $1. Quakers do not believe in slavery. So the Quaker spends the time and writes out her paperwork for her freedom, leaving George Washington Park Custis out of the mess. Marina Carter then moves back to Arlington Estates on her own free accord.
7: Yes. And uh,
5: George Washington Park Custis gives her 17 acres of land when she moves back and her own log cabin. And she gets to marry a slave, the man of the house, the butler, Charles Syfax. Okay. And that's the first marriage that happens underneath that archway in the family parlor in the back. And their descendants, besides outnumbering the liens ten to one, they continue also to live here into the Civil War and after. They have their permanent homestead here. And to give you an idea of what some of their descendants did,
4: mm-hmm. this
5: fellow right here, John Syfax, was one of the first uh, held, the first uh, pretty much government position. I'm not sure if he was a state rep or his part. Of it. Uh, he was a state rep. Yeah, he was a state representative for the state of Virginia. He was the first African-American. Wow. Uh, after the Civil War, okay, William Syfax. he held three elected positions, and what it shows over here was that William Sy- and what it shows over here was that William Syfax was uh, served as the chief messenger of the Department of Interior. He was a delegate to the General Assembly. He was a justice of the peace. He fought, he knew legal, legal ruling. He fought to extend Freeman's Village, which was a slave refugee camp that was here, to educate slaves, get them back on their feet. Missionaries would come in and give them a, a job or something. That way they could, once they learned to trade, they could go out into the rest of the world. But it also provided shelter from the rest of the world, from them. Okay. And so he fought for that. And John, when the US, the U.S. government pays for this, so when eventually the U.S. government says, okay, we've let you stay here long enough. This is only meant to be a temporary solution. You've got to leave now. You've got 90 days to go. Uh, and this was about 20 years later. Some people that had actually been living here had homes and bought land here. John Syfax comes in and basically says, fights at the state level and says no. Uh, They should receive just compensation for the homes that they uh, bought and that they made. They might be in bad condition, but they should receive something so they're not completely out on the streets. So, through his efforts, the U.S. military comes in and uh, analyze, basically surveys the land to figure out what was worthy, what the value of some of these homes that they're forcing people to leave from. And then uh, the families were given just, they were giving, money according to what the condition of their home was in before they left. And they also thought that they were being let go during Christmas time, but the, in return the state was saying, well, you have 90 days, we want you to leave when it gets warmer out. So that was also one of the other things that John fought for. Okay. But, yeah. Uh, well, thank you.
6: Thank welcome. you. So, um, is the color le- troops lecture, where is that going to be?
5: uh the african-american oh yeah some um, of the first african-american troops were trained here too oh they were yes okay so uh we have um,
7: we're having a program
5: today over
7: um the Over the, the, to the, the, the
6: civil war event, 11 o'clock yes so
7: i think they're setting
5: up
6: right the now. civil war where unknown, unknown. So that's a oh, big okay the at the January. unknown soldiers that yes. one Yes. Uh, okay. Yeah,
5: two of the unknown soldier. Tune of the unknown.
6: Two of the unknown. Of the of the okay, unknown. so I have to find it's, it's out where the end that of is. Second the Rose Garden,
5: 2,100 dead? Big down here. Yeah. Okay. And they're going to have this. They're part of the African American regiment for reenacting for Civil War.
6: Fantastic. Okay, you said at 11?
5: Uh, she she said 11. She said at 11 Okay. Uh, yeah, that gentleman, William Cyphex, was the first one to start the African American School System in Washington, D.C.
6: Which one? was William. William. Oh, right okay.
7: Fantastic.
5: So John was the first representative in the state of Virginia that was African American. Uh-huh. William was started the African American School System. And I'm sure one or two of his uh, brothers and stuff were also teachers at that school. Well, thank you.
7: Thank you, you so much. Okay.
0: of conscience, a place that remembers some of the most complicated and painful aspects of the history of this country. Not just the Civil War itself and the, the carnage that that brought to this nation, but the institution of slavery and its long history and its brutality to millions of Americans. Arlington House is unique because it represents so many different aspects of American history, and we're here to recognize one that we regard as being extremely important. The wedding of Charles and Mariah Syphax, Mariah Carter and Charles Syfax. Mariah Carter is believed to have been the daughter of uh, the man who owned this property, who had this house built, the master, George Washington Parke Custis. You see him pictured up here to the right. He was also Martha Washington's grandson, as step-grandson of George Washington, who was raised as the first presidential son in all of American history. He was very famous. When he built this house, he had it built to memorialize George Washington, to honor him, to be a place of great reverence for the founding father of this country. Well, George Washington Park Custis, his daughter Mary, you see below him, married Robert E. Lee in this room under this archway on June 30, 1831. We believe 10 years earlier, his older daughter, Mariah Carter, married Charles Syfax here. Mariah Carter was an enslaved woman. And George Washington Park Custis fathered her by an enslaved woman named Ariana Carter. She grew up here as a slave. We believe she worked in this house as a servant and yet the older half-sister of the woman who would later inherit this property, who married Robert E. Lee. And what we have here is an extraordinarily important history for this country. Because in so many ways, Americans like to simplify our history. We like to think of our history as being very easy to understand. And yet here we have the story of Charles and Mariah. We have one of the most fascinatingly complex stories that you could come up with. George Washington Parcustis, grandson of Martha Washington, had two daughters. One white and privileged and the heiress to his property, one black and enslaved. And in many ways, they grew up side by side here. Was this an acknowledgment of this paternal responsibility that George Washington Custis would, would host her wedding ceremony in this parlor? We don't know. But the fact is, this family, the Syfax family, really is one of the founding families of this country. Of course, there are so many others, African American and European American, who can take place alongside the Syphaxes and the Washingtons and the Leeds as founding families. But what we need to do, and what we aim to do here at Arlington But the fact is this family, the Scifax family really is one of the founding families of this country. Of course, there are so many others, African-American and European-American, who can take place alongside the Syphaxes and the Washingtons and the Leeds as founding families. But what we need to do and what we aim to do here at Arlington House is recognize those as equals, that there is no, in a sense, stratification of who is more important in the creation of this country. Who should we define as the founding family of this country? Well, what we have here passing down through many generations, again, we have one white, privileged, and recognized by historians, the Lees, the Custises, Robert E. Lee and his family, and the other that has been hidden in the shadows that has perhaps not been given the recognition it deserves. And yet, here we are to recognize that. And that is the Syfax family. And so here we are to commemorate, but to celebrate the wedding and the marriage. Mariah Carter and Charles Syfax. Dean De Rosa is a volunteer here. He's going to portray the minister. We have Craig Syfax and Donna Kunkel will portray Charles and Mariah. Dean is going to speak a few words about the the history of the, the details of this, and then we will conduct the ceremony. But I hope everyone will take with them a recognition and an understanding of how this place has that kind of power. That is what the National Park Service is all about. In this centennial anniversary year, the 100th anniversary of the National Park Service, we recognize that these places have power to teach people things about the history of this country they might not otherwise know or recognize. And here, we pay homage and we pay respect to this history. (laughs) (laughs) Sabine?
8: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very special event, a reenactment of the wedding of the enslaved couple Charles Syphax and Mariah Carter, held here at Arlington House in 1821, 195 years ago. The reenactors today are all descendants of the enslaved couple, and are wearing formal clothes inspired by our knowledge of period dress. Their attire is well above the usual attire of plantation slaves, reflecting the enslaved couple's positions as favored household servants and even members of the Custis family, at least in the case of Mariah Carter, the daughter of George Washington Park Custis. Certainly the master of Arlington House and his highly devout wife, Mary Lee Fitzhugh Custis, would have insisted the couple wear, uh, be wed wearing finery appropriate to Arlington House and to Mr. Custis' status as a member of the first, first family of the United States. Did, did Mr. Custis escort Mariah Carter to the site of her wedding vows under the central arch in this parlor to give away his daughter in marriage? We simply do not know, nor do we know if the bride's mother, Arianna Carter, attended the ceremony. However, without question, Mr. and Mrs. Custis organized and hosted the wedding celebration and their 13-year-old daughter, Mary Anna Randolph Custis, who a decade later would stand underneath the same archway to exchange wedding vows with Robert E. Lee, witnessed the wedding. An Episcopal minister performed the wedding service and the marriage was recorded with the church, notably at a time when slave weddings were not recognized by civil authorities and educating blacks as practiced by the Custis family was this time. Thus, our reenactment rena- today follows the liturgy of a period of Episcopal wedding service. Either William Meade or William Wilmer, two leading Episcopal clerics at the time, were well known to the Custises, and most likely one of them performed wedding service. Now, let the wedding ceremony begin. Let us worship God. Friends, marriage was established by God. In marriage, a man and a woman willingly bind themselves together in love, and they become one, as Christ is one with the church, his body. Let marriage be held in honor among all people. Charles Syfax and Mariah Carter, you have come together according to God's wonderful plan for creation. Now, before this company of friends, join hands and say your vows to each other. I, God's promise, We'll be
7: a faithful husband love, honor, and charity. Always I promise with God's help to love and serve as Christ's commands as long as we
1: both love it. And
2: with this ring
7: is a sign of God's command and love.
6: I give you this ring the,
4: promise of love
8: and
0: the Apostle Paul
8: in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 reminds us that love is slow to lose patience. Love looks for a way of being constructive. Love is not possessive. It is neither anxious to impress nor is it, nor does it cherish inflated ideas of its own importance. Love has good manners and does not pursue selfish advantage. Love is not overly sensitive or touchy. Love does not keep account of evil or gloat over the wickedness of other people. On the contrary, love is glad when truth prevails. Love knows no limit to its endurance, no end to its trust, no fading of its hope. Love cannot last anything. Love stands when all else as follows. Now let us pray. Eternal God, without your grace, no earthly promise is true. Strengthen Charles and Mariah with the gift of your Spirit so that they may fulfill the vows they have taken. Keep them faithful to each other and to you. Fill them with such love and joy that they may build a home where no one is a stranger. And guide them by your word to serve you all the days of their lives. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be the honor and glory forever, and ever. Amen. Let us pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. Charles and Mariah, you are now husband and wife, according to the witness of the Holy Universal Church of Christ. Become one. Fulfill your promises. Love and serve the Lord. God has united you. Let no one come between you. Glory be to God who can keep you from falling and bring you safe to his glorious presence, innocent and happy. To God, the only God who saves us through Jesus Christ our Lord, be the glory, majesty, authority and power which he had before time began now and forever. Amen. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the new Charles and Mariah Seidler. God without your grace no earthly promise is true strengthen Charles and Mariah with the gift of your spirit so that they may fulfill the vows they have taken keep them faithful to each other and to you fill them with such love and joy that they may build a home where no one is a stranger and guide them by your word to serve you all the days of their lives Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be the honor and glory forever, ever. Amen. Let us pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, for heaven. Amen. Charles and Mariah, you are now husband and wife, according to the witness of the Holy Universal Church of Christ. Become one, fulfill your promises, love and serve the Lord. God has united you, let no one come between you. Glory be to God who can keep you from falling and bring you safe to his glorious presence, innocent and happy. To God, the only God who saves us through Jesus Christ our Lord, be the glory, majesty, authority, and power which he had before time began, now and forever. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. uh, Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the newlyweds, Charles and Mariah Seidler.
0: Folks, as the newlyweds (laughs) depart the mansion, um, I want to invite you to a lecture by Dr. Spencer-Crew, who's going to be speaking about the marriages and wedding customs and marriages and enslaved people on plantations such as Arlington, Um, what would the Cypaxes have experienced, or others on this plantation and others in this area? Marriage we have a certain understanding about. I'm a married man, I certainly do, but what did it mean then? Dr. Kerr will be speaking about this. And if you're interested in hearing uh, his lecture, please remain seated. And he'll be speaking here in just a couple minutes. Otherwise, uh, please enjoy the rest of your day and your visit here at Arlington. Make sure you take a tour of the mansion and visit the historic slave quarters. And thank you very much for participating in this event which we consider so important to the history of this house. Good afternoon.
6: George Washington married Martha Washington, and Martha Washington um, was a descendant. The Custards were descendants of Martha Washington. And
7: the grandson there married an enslaved woman. And Mariah.
6: Oh, okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And so, Mariah um, was the daughter of uh, Jackie Custis. And she got married in this house. So, that is the relationship. And I'll try and go and
7: scope the uh, family tree. So I'm going to close this scope out. Thank you guys for joining.
4: Let me
7: introduce you to Dr. Oh,
0: thank you. Group. Thank you
2: very much. You. I'm sorry to break up the conversation. Well, yeah. um, I was asked to talk a little bit about enslaved marriages and how this, how this particular marriage fit into a larger context of understanding the life of married enslaved people. First of all, what a powerful ceremony to watch. Uh It must have been a very unique moment for both Mariah and Charles in terms of having a chance to actually have a ceremony Mm -hmm. with the minister, Mm -hmm. have a chance to do it in Arlington House itself, in this parlor, as was mentioned later on, her half-sister would have the same space, and to have a formal ceremony take place where their vows are recognized were able to publicly share their affection and their love for one another in a very public, well-recognized fashion. And I'm sure for them they felt the same way that this was a special occasion, a very unique occasion, and that in many ways this was a different kind of experience than many other enslaved people they knew about had as well. And I think that's what we need to begin to think about, is that in fact, this ceremony, this experience for them was a very unique one in the larger picture of the life of enslaved people. Because in fact, the chance to be married itself is a very unique opportunity to have to happen. Because in many instances, a marriage formally taking place was not part of the process in terms of African American slave men and women working together. In fact, economically, marriage was an interesting phenomenon, but clearly not an important one in terms of the operation and the economics of a slave population of enslaved people. Because for many slave masters and slavers, it was not so much an interest in people getting married and husband and wife getting together in a family. What was much more interesting, much more important was the children that resulted as a consequence of this marriage and this coming together. Because for them, economically, children were an important part of that process of success of that plantation. Because children represented the next generation of workers, next generation laborers. So at minimum it meant that you had more people coming along and to work in the field and allowed the plantation to, t- to continue to be successful. Or it allowed you another individual that you had under your control who you might be able to excel and sell, to make a profit for it. And sometimes people think, well, that's really not ready for part of what goes on on this plantation. But let me have you think about this in a different kind of way. I'm sure all of you know that in the beginning, as Virginia got started, primary crop was tobacco. Tobacco was very uh, popular in other places, and the land was fertile, and there was plenty of it here in Virginia. Tobacco became the primary crop for the state or colony at the time. But well, what happens is the problem with tobacco is that it really begins to undermine the fertility of the soil. Over time, if you have more and more crop from the same soil, it kills its ability to have more crops. So over the years, as tobacco was uh, mined, Almost exclusively and intensively, the land began to suffer. And your ability to have successful tobacco crops begins to lessen. So, what happens is that Virginia has to begin to look to other kinds of crops, other kinds of things to grow. Some people argue that when the Quakers came here from Pennsylvania, they brought with them a different kind of farming approach. Most of the grains and wheat and wheat, like that was what they grew there. So, that became more and more the crop of value. It's a cash crop for. Virginia going forward. So, as you transition from the 1700s to the 1800s, more and more wheat and grains become your primary crop. Well, this has a consequence. You do not need the same intensity, the same number of laborers to take care of wheat and grain, you need to take care of tobacco. Mm -hmm. So, what begins to happen in Virginia is that the need for large numbers of workers begins to diminish. So, you might ask yourself, I said before, that children as labor were important, how does this make it important for Virginia? Well, for two, for uh, one key reason, is that while Virginia didn't need new labor, there was this other crop that came into importance with the creation of a cotton chain, cotton. And cotton becomes the ash crop, not for Virginia, but for other states in the deeper south, Alabama, Mississippi, as sugar in Louisiana. Is also important. They cannot get enough labor. They need it as much as possible. In fact, you have sons of Virginians who move out that way to make their fortune because trying to survive here is more and more difficult. So that uh, the demand for labor there combined becomes a net slave exporting state. That those uh, labor that they need was sold for profit here, then resold in the Deep South for greater profit. So there is an incentive here in Virginia to continue to have a burgeoning labor force as a way of continuing to make a profit, especially as tobacco becomes less profitable. And we and other grains also have fluctuating value in terms of the worldwide market. So that labor, in terms of children, becomes a very important part of this. So for many slave holders, the idea of a marriage is an interesting concept really not one of the importance. What was more important was to get the women and men together and children to issue from that union. And so they approached it in a different kind of way. Many slaveholders felt that marriage wasn't even important. In fact, what they wanted to see was more children produced, so they would use other kind of devices to get to that stage. It wasn't unusual on some plantations for the slaveholder to pick out the largest, the strongest, the most lustier male slave, and to make him with the number of women. Not allowing them to find the person that they love, but to make with this man, believing that it would result in strong laborers that would be good for sale for later. If they didn't take this path, the other thing they might do is just decide for companies who are going to marry. They might say, Well, you look very likely, you look strong, you're like you'd be a good producer, you two marry. You don't love each other? That's a I marriage. Mean. What I mean is children. So the idea is that how do, we, how do they connect them together to create the kind of children, the kind of labor force that they want. So you can imagine that Mariah and Charles are thinking the both very fortunate, in this instance, that at least we're able to choose our, for ourselves what we want to have happen. The, uh, as a consequence, uh, with these choices taking place, when you had the chance, in fact, to choose your mate, or at least to select someone, it was a, a but even then, there was a lot of negotiation that had to go on. If you wanted to marry someone, first of all, your slaveholder, your slaveholder, had to approve. If he said or if she said no, there's no here. You just have to find somebody else and just make do it the way that things are. And as you made this request, you had to also understand what were the rules that your particular slaveholder had in place. They might suggest that you could only marry someone on this plantation. You are allowed to marry someone down the street, down the road, on another plantation, only on this plantation. And we do this in part because they didn't want any confusion about who those children belonged to. Because if you were to marry someone on another plantation, the question then becomes so whose children did they belong to? And we know by law that the children follow the state of their mother, so if the mother's enslaved, they're enslaved. But it wasn't quite as clear about who controlled the destiny of that child. Was it the, the owner of the mother? the owner of the father. So to avoid that, you would say, you are only very similar on our plantation nowhere else. Well, that also became problematic because if you're in a smaller place over the years, it became harder and harder to find someone to marry who might not be able relative to And that also becomes a challenge. So these things become part of the process. The other problem that I was facing in terms of thinking about this was not only um, would you have to marry someone on your own plantation. If you didn't and you found someone on the other plantation, you still have to think that two slave owners to come together and to negotiate how this is going to work. They might have to decide who the children belong to, or they might have to decide whether or not we're going to let this happen at all. Sometimes what they say is that what we're going to do is we're going to, I'm going to sell you to, to the other person, and that way we solve this problem. And therefore there's no issue about who the children belong to. The other idea is that if you allow the marriage to take place and then they keep control of the individuals, but they allow one of the individuals to come and visit the other one uh, at certain times during the week or during the year. You'd have to get a pass from the slave, and then you'd be allowed to travel uh, from one place to the other to stay with your family. The amount of time you can stay together buried uh widely, it could be you can come maybe twice a week, sometimes most often they would come on the weekends and you might actually finish your work on Saturday afternoon, you might split all over to Sunday night and have to return back to work. I've also read in some of the slave narratives where in fact the father was taken so far away he only had to see his family once a year. But it was still considered to be a marriage. Now the slave had a name for these kind of marriages. They called them a marriages and traveling marriages. Because you weren't there all the time had to travel back and forth. But I think the feeling was that at least it was a marriage. At least there was something connected to it. That had family. And people found it very important to that these traveling marriages were important. But <laughs> These traveling marriages were important, but also a different form of living together. Again, because, you can imagine that Eli and Charles were feeling very awesome, and very good about the fact that they were in the same presentation. They, were married, they lived together, and they didn't have to have a broad marriage either kind um, of negotiating marriage that would take place. Now, the other thing that's unusual is to have a sick marriage ceremony itself. And very often there wasn't a marriage ceremony that you'd come to get permission, and say, fine, go on. And there was no formal ceremony. Now, if there was a ceremony, it sort of wasn't as ornate as this one. Very often it might only be appreciated by a well-respected like member of the enslaved would say a few words and allow you to go um, off to get married. Or you might even have the slaveholder himself officiate over by saying a few words, and then allowing you to consider yourselves married. Now, one of the traditions that we now continue to keep during this period, to get a more formal word, even less formal, yeah, is the idea of the word. So you all have heard about that. And what we have learned is that this emerges out of African culture. And the groom represents so sweeping aside the past. A sweeping aside the the experience. So the groom means a clean beginning community game. The jump in the groom is an idea that whoever jumps highest is to be the boss. Of the past. <laughs> <laughs> so next time you watch the wedding, you see who jumps highest. <laughs> uh, the idea is that the male to sits a little bit strong and jumps a little higher, didn't always have. I love I read one narrative where, in fact, it happened, the woman jumped higher, and everyone and had a good time. It turns out she was the boss. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this works very well. But well. So these kind of ceremonies, it wasn't uh, usually have like a very elaborate one, but I think among the enslaved, they found touches to use with it to make sure that, in fact, they had some impact on it and were able to sort of come together to allow these things to happen. So you have a learning ceremony, and you have this connection taking place. Well, what follows then is interesting because again, very likely we didn't have much of a celebration following. You'd be pronounced white and, and then they go off. But we're expecting we expect you to be at work right early the next day, <laughs> or work right early the next time when we come together. So that honeymoon as such is sort of fitting in a very tight narrow period of time, was a part or sort of our part of it. The other thing I think that um, was very challenging for them was understanding that as you came out of this marriage and you had a chance to come together, understand that marriage was very important to the That that connection with a family member, having a family behind the children, to have someone to share the life with them, was that was valuable. And you can see this better, after the Civil War, many people who had been separated came back together trying to find each other to renew these marriages and bring them back together. So that even while the ceremony and the mm-hmm. way it's perceived by the slave, the slavers, was not as um, strong, for those who were involved in these marriages, it was a very important part of the life. Mm-hmm. The other thing I think we want to keep in mind with this ceremony and these occasions is that even with Mariah and, with, and with Charles, after the wedding, it wasn't clear what their future might be like. That
4: mm-hmm.
2: the reality is that now you found someone to whom you feel very strongly, whom you want to share your life with, control of their life is manager, and it might change at any minute in any circumstance. Because as much as you are perceived as human beings, you will also perceive as property. And as a consequence, as property, you were saleable. You could be sold and the province choose for a variety of kinds of things. So that these slave couples are not ever sure about how steadfast, how long that, that marriage, that, that, that coming together was going to last. Because any change might alter that connection. If the slaveholder on that plantation fell into deep debt, you might decide he needs to sell someone in order to cover that debt. Very often, it didn't matter if it was your child or your husband or your wife, if they need the money, they would make that choice. And split up families it was not at all unusual, in fact, it was the most common thing to happen for enslaved families, You still lose them member of the family, one or the other. Some of this, the most heartbreaking things I've read about straight families is listening to mothers with young children being separated from those children, and they talk about... from families, You to mm-hmm. lose the middle of the family one way or the other. Some of this, the most heartbreaking things I've read about um, slave families is listening to mothers with young children separated from those children. And they talk about the pleading that mothers would have to um, person to person to please bring my baby with me and they say no, I don't need that. And we're hearing the separation taking place. That is a very powerful concern that was part and parcel of the experience of those who were enslaved who got married. Of Mariah and Charles. They were fortunate in the sense that she was free, they were able to handle parts of the But for many of them, didn't know was not the case. You were expected to go back to work, and you were never sure about what the future might hold. The other thing of great concern for the slave was the death of the slave owner. Because that put everything in chaos. And yet everything that it operated before changes. And you've got to figure out what the new circumstances are. And very often, the debt meant that debt meant was that the individual often had debts, owed people money, and those debts had to be paid off. Mm-hmm. And it didn't always, to did up equally, mm-hmm. that a whole person provided enough coverage for that debt. So again, you didn't even have sales as a way of paying off those debts in order to take care of the um, the, the things that the uh, slave owner had had acquired. The other problem was that you also didn't have heirs. Uh, who expect to get their portion of the same. And again, that's not a clean kind of thing. It didn't mean that whole families would get plumped and sent to one place or another. It could mean that a husband would want a a mother would another place, and the children would want someplace else. And it might depend upon who was the favorite of the, of, the, of the child of the slaveholder, of the wife, or even other relatives who had claim on that on group. So that these were constant concerns that they worry those who are enslaved in terms of what the future might be like. The last piece that I want to mention uh, in terms of both concerns is the fact that you have no control over your own body. You have no control over what happens to those who are part of your family. I think the one thing that parent always wants to be able to do is to protect their children, mm-hmm. to provide them with some kind of bubble of protection that allows them to be safe. Well, that doesn't exist in it's like because the hierarchy could be the child, the parent, the overseer, and then the slave owner. So that if in fact you did something to make the overseer unhappy, to make the slave owner unhappy, or his family unhappy, his wife unhappy, they could punish you. And all you could do is that spouse, all you could do is the parent can scan and watch that day. Close. And to watch them get to watch a husband get a hundred stripes. Or wife to take 50 first. Your child would be versus You had no control over that. So as this wedding takes place, and as Mariah and Charles, I think, at this very special occasion, I'm sure there's also some worry around. Worry about what the future might hold. And for other enslaved mm-hmm. couples for who got married and came together, that same worry was compounded even more than it was for Charles. Mm-hmm. But this is not to say that the marriage was not even important. It's not to say that the wedding and coming together the two are two or important, important things. Because what was valued was, one, to a life mate during delivery. Someone after a long, difficult day who could sit down and talk to you. Children could gather around you and hold the love, and they could love you back. And you read a lot about how strong and how important those connections were when those who were instead. But I think it's also important to keep in mind that with the power and the wonderful aspects connected with the marriage of the enslaved, there's always having a certain symbolism with it. So that the story is one of the good and the bad. And as we celebrate their marriage, as we celebrate, I think this very special occasion from Ryan and Charles, we also have to keep in mind the challenges that they faced, and more importantly, the challenges that other enslaved people faced. And they, too, decided to get married and come together. That if the future was different, the future might be better. But the future also might be very painful. It's a very uh, uneven kind of future that they before So these are things that I've been thinking about when you think about this ceremony. Enjoy it. I think uh, appreciate the moment for Mariah and Charles. But also understand that the future itself can be very challenging and may have art
4: Yes.
6: Yes. Oh, I'm just late. I don't know if she was black, but I have a <laughs> question. <laughs> um, let's see, how can I say this? Um, Mariah yeah. and my ancestor are first cousins. So they're both the children of George Washington Park cousins. But it's, they took different paths.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: ...very challenging
4: and may mm-hmm. have a harder with than. Oh, I'm just late. I am not know if she was black, but I have a <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs>
6: <laughs> um let's see how can I say this? Um Mariah and my ancestor are first cousins. So they're both the children of George Washington Park Customs. But it's they took different paths in terms of the, the wedding. Now Mariah was married here, and my ancestor Lucy was married at Christ Church because um and i Found to hold this out even the church didn't seem to know it didn't have this history but i just i uncovered it by accident you know so it's interesting i'm thinking that there were two minds there now lucy who my ancestor caroline who is my grandmother to the seventh generation they were all raised pretty much of mount vernon so i think that when they were brought in, uh, caroline was brought here the mindset i think was she wanted to follow the episcopal church and be part of the new movement to have eventually an African-American uh, body, congregation, be a part of that. That's just what I'm thinking because the whole family has remained Episcopalian. And I think that's sort of what, where she was going with that. Um, but certainly, they, Lucy was married there. All the children were, you know, baptized there. Church. His parents, uh, what is it called? Confirmed there. And she died and was buried there in Christchurch. So it's, a, it's kind of two different ways of looking at it. And I'm thinking, I'm wondering to myself, how what do you know about the fact that some of them, some of the state people may have been wanting to be a part of the new community, because listen, they knew, or they should have known, I'm sure, that one of the ways that the children were uh, acknowledged was not by name, but early release, was an early release program. And so they, <laughs> What we
2: described An early release sure. program.
6: So some of them, and I think Caroline knew she was going to eventually be, you know, at least really. so her children would be early, which they were. So I'm just wondering, do you know, what do you know about that?
2: I know a lot about the Episcopalian Church.
6: Or oh, just any church that might have been connected. What, to the what I States. know most about, it, at least
2: understand, is more the Baptist Church and the Baptist Church, because mm-hmm. part of what was their yeah. argument is that everyone had souls that were and in the larger philosophy, that everyone had some equality. And what happens over the years is that the Southern Baptist Church, the Southern Methodist Church, stepped really mm-hmm. on one side. But if you talk about the early camp meetings that were taking place across mm-hmm. the South, enslaved people and African uh, Americans were going to, to go in, in large numbers because of what they were espousing was equality
6: among the groups. Is that after slavery or something? No, oh, no, that's before slavery. So yeah. they were allowed to, how did they just go past, I guess? They pass. sometimes
2: oh. they go you from know, Saturday to the Sunday, they might go, uh-huh. sometimes they just went through as supposed to. Closer. Uh, and that's part of the reason why the Southern Baptist Church became in you know, back in history, because it was not offering the kind of philosophy that supported these Christians. This is Christian yeah. kind of to try you know, to agree I that. I think that just happened much. as a factor of
6: yeah. General yes. Washington. And, you know, was the George Washington Park has also false Mr. Yes. So was, well, then that's probably important about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. That uh, Mariah and Charles had ten children and their offspring,
4: <laughs> kind of made marks in the community, and I will just say mm-hmm. been acting in the community. The other, uh, the sister, the
6: half-sister, did, what kind of, like their families now, I, I think they were saying something uh, about, Somewhere I read that some of the offspring did not make it or something, or uh, I'm talking up. about Mariah's sister. I think she had six kids. Mariah had 10 kids. Are their families a lot known about their family now? Like how Craig is active here with the uh, Arlington House. Does anybody know what the, what was her sister? We didn't about the to lead, to lead. To lead. Yeah, the Phyllis Six. I,
8: I right. Yeah. right there. Do we you
6: know much about them?
8: I don't know. Can you say anything? Well, I it's hard to say. I mean, the the, the Lees were certainly prominent after the war. Uh, All the children are there except for one who dies during the war. And um, many, for instance, uh, prominent in the sense um, that a lot of the artifacts that are at Mount Vernon today were given by the Lees to Mount Vernon. Kept custody of many of the artifacts from Mount Vernon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, you can find descendancy charts of the Lee family.
4: Celebration? Uh,
8: centennial celebration? I thought services was Fox. Oh, uh, no, not that I know of. Okay. I mean, the, the Barlington House is certainly in contact with some Lee family members. Matt can speak directly in this technology. but generally they have a low profile. Uh, okay. I've never really been introduced to a lead family member coming you in so Okay. I'm so happy to see you here. Okay. But they're around. I wanted to ask a question. You mentioned about their debt. Yes. How would
4: they have debt when they paid money? Because. George Washington yeah,
8: about,
6: uh, no. and, and
4: his yeah, family are like, no, the to get a bill of life. Don't I have a slave no, no, no. meant to yeah. slave
2: holdings? Yes. 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 Uh, like uh, It's wow. like Jefferson bought like crazy, and he had lots
4: of remember? Yeah. Another family
1: was Prominent here in Washington, in America, in Washington, were the uh, Fitzhughs, yeah. and one of the names of the daughter here was Fitzhugh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for that, she was Fitzhugh, mm-hmm. and uh, as far as the Episcopal Church goes, the Episcopal Church here in America, really the Church of England here in America, mm-hmm. and they were administrators over taxes. Um, in other words, taxes. Colonial time the tobacco you know, the churches. Uh, that's who actually collected the tobacco and then sent it back to England. Uh, George Washington was uh, a vestryman at uh, the Falls Church until they started the church at
4: the um,
6: you know, Episcopal and
1: down there in So I just wanted to. Oh, thank you, because
6: I didn't have that little background. I knew there were people but thank you for that.
7: On the Methodist Church, that was the radicals of the time. Mm-hmm. They're not as, you can't tell the difference now. But they also had meeting houses. And whether you were enslaved or not, everyone met in mm-hmm. the same meeting house. Mm-hmm. But what happened was they started to build churches. Mm-hmm. And then they started to create balconies. Um, so the balconies oh. were the kind of color-hacking.
4: Mm-hmm. And,
7: and some people walk out and that's where anti and all that comes out of folks saying this is a right political position. So that was all during that time, and there was a minister who married and received someone as slave, but the, 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 the church said he couldn't, and so the divide that split the church. So that's why it's called the United Methodist Church because the church was split and it reunited. Really yeah, If I could add
1: to that uh, one of the first uh, the Methodist Church came here to England, uh, I mean, from England, John uh, Wesley, um, and uh, mm-hmm. they started out in uh, near Baltimore near Ellicott City. Mm-hmm. And one of the first churches was Fairfax Chapel, mm-hmm. which was in Paul's church at what is now Oakwood Cemetery. And there was a black minister, one of the early um, Methodist ministers was a guy named Harry Houser. Uh, but he was known for giving a uh, a sermon on what is it the name? the, uh, the baron uh, fig tree or fig pine, and that was done at Fairfax Chapel, uh, which was and there's a bar relief of that uh, actual uh, sermon in the Oakwood Cemetery. Church. Uh, but uh, he and um, Richard Allen
4: mm-hmm.
1: uh, they were not they were they were Methodist ministers, but at the convention that they had in eighteen uh, eighteen eighties, I think it was, mm-hmm. they were not recognized mm-hmm. as full-fledged ministers. Mm-hmm. And uh, we all know Richard Allen broke away from that stuff the church.
6: Mm-hmm. It's interesting how many of the descendants, I don't know about the Syfax family or the Carter family, but how many descendants became involved in churches as church leaders, and certainly that convention that convened to open the church or to separate and give the African American community their own churches was, again, one of Caroline's grandchildren, my great.
1: Mm-hmm. And, um, near, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. So I just wanted to
4: say
6: well, thank you, because houses. I didn't have that little oh, background. I knew there was an email, but thank you for
7: that. On the Methodist Church, that was the radicals of the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're not as tell the as now, but they also had meeting houses, and whether you were enslaved or not, everyone mm-hmm. met in the same meeting house. Mm-hmm. But what happened was they started to build churches, mm-hmm. and then they started creating um, balconies. Uh, these were kind of color mm-hmm. and, and some people walk out and that's where 89 and all that comes out of, folks saying this isn't right and they couldn't in. So that was all during that time. And there was a minister who married and received someone as slave, but the, 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 the church said he couldn't. And so the divide that split the church. So that's why it's called the United Methodist Church because the church was split. And, Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah.
1: If I could add to that, uh, one of the first, uh, the Methodist Church mm-hmm. came here to England, uh, I mean from England, John uh, Wesley, right. um, yeah. and uh, mm-hmm. they started out in uh, near Baltimore, near Ellicott City. Mm-hmm. And one of the first churches was Fairfax Chapel, mm-hmm. which was in Falls church at what is now Oakwood the cemetery, and there was a black minister, one of the early, Methodist minister was a guy named Harry Hoosier, know he named Hoosier comes from. Uh, but he was known for giving a uh, a sermon on what is it the name? the, uh, the barren big uh, fig tree or big and that was done at Fairfax Chapel, uh, which was and there's a bar relief of that uh, actual uh, sermon mm-hmm. in the Oakwood Cemetery in Falls Church, uh, but uh, he and um, Richard Allen—they mm-hmm. uh, were not—they were they were Methodist ministers, but at the convention that they had in uh, the 1880s, think it was—they mm-hmm. were not recognized. Mm-hmm
6: it's interesting well, how many of the descendants I don't know about the sidefax family or the Carter family but how many descendants became involved in churches as church leaders and certainly that convention that convened to Open the church or to separate and give the African American community owned churches was well, again one of Caroline's grandchildren, my great great grandfather. So it's it's it, it so much intertwined. I'm bringing up something very important. <laughs> I'm going to intervene here
0: just quickly because we're going to have to wrap it up and thank Dr. Kurt for the <laughs> uh, we, There's a lot more research to be done, oh, yeah. there's a lot more knows still, mm-hmm. and so if anyone has any additional information I you want to share with us, we're open, we want to hear, uh, Steve Hammond back here, I want to point out Steve Hammond, a family historian of the Cyphex family, has been amazing in helping us learn more about the family history, so anybody, anybody who has any information, uh, you know, we're going to looking forward to work with you too. That's
4: a lot Yeah.